Hi, Ray here. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know I'm now putting my content onto my Substack site. I like Substack. It's got a nice interface and it's email based and therefore is more cancel proof. Since I have your emails, I can just move from one platform to another if they try to cancel me. So if you haven't already, go sign up for my newsletter. And when you sign up for the newsletter, you'll get my post, uh, occasional updates, recommended resources, and you'll get the podcast as well, all in one. Even if you want to continue using your podcast app, head over to the website, theconfessionalist.com, and subscribe. That's uh, Confessionalist with an S at the end. Or you can find me very easily on Substack. Type in Raymond Simmons Substack, and you'll find it right there. Today, we're on episode 15. Why We Need the Recognized Church. I'd like to talk today about something no one is talking about. No one that I know of is writing about. Uh, Definitely nobody is calling for it. And that is the necessity of each of our states, or at least counties, to have an officially recognized church. I believe this is necessary and that we cannot expect any sustained uh, societal progress until we have it, or at least something that functions like it. Now, I said recognized, not established. Established has been a good term. It's what we're kind of used to. Doctrinally, I hold to establishmentarianism. Remember that word from grade school, disestablishmentarianism? Well, that's the opposite. That calls for uh, a separation of church and state such that there's really no relation. And uh, it calls for no religious test for office. And then you might remember that other word, the longer word, Anti-disestablishmentarianism. So there, there you have a double negative. Anti-disestablishmentarianism is simply an establishmentarian, and that's what I am. I am for what has historically been known as the established church, but I have some disclaimers. First, I don't like the word established. I don't like it because it implies that the state establishes the church, and the state doesn't do that. Jesus established the church, period. You only establish something once, and Jesus already did that. Along these lines, uh, the civil magistrate of a society with an established church may think, and they often historically have thought, that they are in charge of the church. But the Bible's organizational chart has the elders as federal heads reporting directly to King Jesus, not to King George. Reporting to King George is what we would call Erastianism. Erastianism is the idea that the state is over the church, uh, but that is unbiblical. My second disclaimer deals with financial support. The idea of the civil magistrate supporting the church through taxes is not a good one. The Bible has each man give directly to the church and cheerfully. God demands 10%, but he also demands a cheerful giver and a giver who gives directly. Leviticus talks about a man bringing a young bull, a bull without blemish to the, to the priest, not to the prince. And that's the pattern. Lastly, the way the established church has operated in the past lacks local accountability. It typically has an Episcopalian polity with uh, bishops, and that structure is extra-biblical. It developed after the apostolic church, and it's so much top-down that the local church cannot exercise the accountability it needs to stay pure. This lack of accountability is a good soil for liberalism to grow in, and that's what we've seen in the established church. 
Okay, so those are my disclaimers. The interesting thing is that none of these things are necessary. They can and should be eliminated. And so that's why I'm recommending the recognized church, a a group of churches bound together in a solemn agreement that is uh, recognized by the civil magistrate as the official church. I'm going to get into some specifics and some tactics on how this can be done in the next podcast, but for today, I just want to present the argument. And the argument's pretty simple. It's an argument from the impossibility of the alternate. It is not possible, according to my understanding of the Bible, to have societal righteousness and blessing from God without an officially recognized church. And two reasons for that. First, without this, you will not be able to restrict biblically unqualified men and women, for that matter, from holding office. And you will not be able to remove them should they later disqualify themselves. Secondly, without the officially recognized church, the civil magistrate cannot do what it is charged to do, to be uh, a terror to evil, particularly the evil of idolatry, blasphemy, adultery, sexual perversion. These social sins require civil punishment. Okay, so let's walk through these two things. First of all, requirements for office. The Bible has simple and direct things to say about the qualifications for civil office. Interestingly, Most of the qualifications are what we would call religious. In fact, they're overwhelmingly religious. This may uh, seem strange to our American ears, but we should actually expect it because they are God's ministers. The church is is not the only uh, institution with ministers. The civil magistrate also has ministers, according to Romans 13. And so, in places like Exodus 18, verse 21, we read this, Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands and rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties and rulers of tens. So here you have the qualifications listed out. Ability, masculinity, faithfulness and fear of God, And someone who hates covetousness, which in modern terms would rule out anyone who does not understand biblical economics or who is in uh, favor of unbiblical taxes. Nehemiah 7 says that a man must be faithful and fear God in order to hold civil office. Uh, Deuteronomy 16.18 says they have to have just judgment. 2 Samuel 23.3 says they must be just men ruling in the fear of God. So God sets a high bar, particularly on a man's religion, on his faithfulness. And here's where you have to have agreement between the civil magistrate and the church on what each of these qualifications means practically in today's terms. If you read civil documents such as constitutions, they're very much interested in who is qualified for office, and that's appropriate. But Most of them completely exclude the biblical qualifications for office today, and that's not surprising. Without an official church, those things are eventually going to disappear. Without a religious test, you're not in line with the most important thing, according to God, about his ministers and the civil magistrate. And how are you going to have a religious test if you can't have a set standard, and how you can have a set standard unless you have one church who agrees on doctrine. Can you imagine if the civil magistrate says, okay, we now understand that there are biblical qualifications for civil office, so all churches out there, tell us what 
uh, you think we should say in our documents. Can you imagine that? It would be all over the place. It would just be unusable. So you need some agreed standard by which men can be considered holy and faithful. And you get that from the church. The church is the one to handle the Word of God accurately and to give the sense of it. It's also supposed to contextualize the moral law and apply it to our everyday situation. Let me show you what happens when you don't have a religious test. As far as I can tell, none of the nine judges on our Supreme Court are qualified. None of them meet the biblical qualifications, not one of them. There are nine judges. Six of them are Roman Catholic. Now, these Roman Catholics are some of the most conservative judges. But does being conservative make you qualified? I really like Clarence Thomas. He seems to be uh, the best thinker of the whole group. But remember what God says, that they have to be faithful men of good judgment. Even if the Roman Catholics on the bench were truly regenerate, which they could be, despite the Roman Catholic Church, they would not be under weekly biblical preaching. How long are you going to be faithful without that? How are you going to have the judgment required by the Bible to rule on right and wrong without a true church educating you and holding you accountable weekly? So that's uh, six of them. One of them uh, practices Judaism, which, of course, denies the Savior of the world. It's clearly blasphemy, according to the Bible. And that leaves two. One of them is Katanji Brown Jackson. Now, she takes the bench this summer and replaces another justice who subscribes to Judaism. Now, Jackson is a self-proclaimed non-denominational Protestant. But remember, she doesn't even believe the most basic thing in Genesis, that God created mankind male and female. She didn't even have the judgment to tell who a woman is. And of course, the Bible requires men in office, and she's not a man, so she's disqualified there, too. The only possibly qualified one is Neil Gorsuch, but unfortunately, he has disqualified himself with his support of legalized uh, sodomy. If he were in a biblical church, which uh, is required and used to be in the documents, uh, a requirement for men to be faithful and to have good judgment and therefore to hold office, he might have an opportunity to repent and to correct his wrong. As far as I can tell, we have uh, no one who is biblically qualified to be a judge in the highest court in the land. So I ask you, what's the overall quality of judgment that is going to come out of this group? Uh, You know, uh, eventually, occasionally, by God's common grace, there, there may be some good decisions. Uh, but is God pleased with this? Is God going to bless this construct for the long term? So the first reason for the recognized church is that without it, you won't be able to do what God says to do, and that is to keep out those who are unqualified according to God. Second, without the officially recognized church, the civil magistrate cannot do what it is charged to do, to be a terror to evil, particularly the evil of uh, idolatry, blasphemy, adultery, uh, sexual perversion, Sabbath breaking, all these social uh, sins. The civil magistrate 
has a limited role, but an absolutely critical one. It is to punish evil and to protect good, which are two sides of the same coin. If you want to know specifically what the civil magistrate is supposed to do, just look in the Bible. Everywhere where there is a civil sanction, such as death or restitution, it belongs to the civil magistrate. Now, if these biblical laws are not enforced, not punished, the land is defiled. And we are under curses, according to the Bible. So we need the civil magistrate to punish them. These, these laws come from the Ten Commandments, both tables of the law. And so it's very important to have, have the church to help the civil magistrate. Now, you might be thinking that individual Christians can provide the guidance from within their seats as magistrates. But I don't think that's the case. Being a Christian is necessary to hold office, but it's not sufficient for a righteous society. And that's because God structured society with an institutional covenantal headship structure. Uh, so where you have one institution keeping the other institution uh, accountable. So the history of church councils and synods that's a very good illustration of God's way for the church to interact with a civil magistrate. We need to cover some of the objections. You may have some of these objections. I already mentioned some of, of the objections or clarifications that I have to the common understanding and practice of the established church. Number one, the state doesn't establish the church. Jesus does. And the state should not tax the tithe. And the state should not have uh, our support, an Episcopalian structure that lacks accountability. But I think that my proposal of the recognized church would, would eliminate those things and uh, make the objections go away. Uh, another objection that I have heard is that the established church uh, will enable punishments for blasphemy and things like that, and that this may be abused. I know one preacher, a good man with a lot of wisdom, I've learned from him, who holds to this. He says he's not in favor of the established church because he doesn't want to give so much power to the civil government to execute blasphemers, etc., and I understand the concern, but basically this approach is saying no to God saying we're not going to do it his way because we're afraid of what we might do to each other. And so we can't do that. That's unfaithful. Here's a doozy of one. Isn't the established church illegal and unconstitutional? What about the establishment clause? Well, many people today, thanks to government schools, think the establishment clause means that a state cannot have uh, official religion. The state cannot have it, but that's not the historical case, not at all. Most of the states had official religion and also had religious tests for office at the time of the Constitution, and there was no problem with that. It was understood that the Establishment Clause was a ban on uh, on government-established religion at the federal level, not the state. And it's also helpful to read what the Constitution actually says. It says this, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Does it say all civil governments shall make no law? No. It says Congress shall make no law, and they never have. We don't have a Church of America like the Church of England. Now, there have been some who have rightly asserted in court that the establishment clause does not apply to the states. It's just for the federal government. But they lost the argument. 
One case was Everson versus the Board of Education in 1947. It ruled that the Establishment Clause did apply to states. Justice Clarence Thomas, who we mentioned earlier as having uh, good judgment, it seems like, said clearly it was meant for the federal government. He pointed out the inconvenient truth that uh, most of the states had official religion and religious tests at the time of the Constitution. There's no mention of it being a problem. North Carolina, for example, barred anyone, quote, who shall deny the being of God or the truth of the Protestant religion. Okay, they could not serve in the civil government if they uh, denied those things. Unfortunately, each of these states gradually stepped away from their from their official church or from at least the biblical qualifications as they became more pluralistic. By about the mid 1800s, official religions in the states had pretty much disappeared, and I think. It's not ultimately because of our uh, federal constitution. Um, I think that it was because at that time, our founders were pretty influenced by the rationalism of John Locke and his uh, his social contract. That was unfortunately uh, very influential. Um, even in in the states, I think we also, as uh, as states and as a federation of states, overreacted to England's abuse of the state church, and we basically threw out the baby with the bathwater. I highly recommend you read the article by Joe Moorcraft on why his denomination adopted the original Westminster Confession and not the American version of the Westminster Confession. It has to do with uh, the church's institutional status and how the civil magistrate has a role, a limited role, in church matters and things like uh, suppressing heresies and calling synods. Uh, I'll attach a PDF to the Substack uh, version of this podcast. You can take a look at it. But obviously, the country did not have a good start with understanding the need of the established church, or what, what I'm proposing the recognized church. And the idea is almost gone today. And I say almost because there are some remnants. Uh, In 2013, there was a bill on the floor in North Carolina to establish a state religion. Now, interestingly, it blossomed out of a lawsuit in a county, Rowan County, North Carolina. But the, uh, the bill proposed boldly and clearly that the U.S. Constitution does not prevent the states from official religion. Well, the law didn't pass, um, but you know it was a it was an actual uh, you know debated uh, bill on the floor in North Carolina. Interestingly, eight states uh, still have a religious test in their constitution today. None of them, however, enforce it. Well, I was actually going to save the topic of the recognized church for a a later time. But with the possibility of Roe versus Wade being kicked back to the states, that just moved it up on the priority list for me. When I read the news that it was the Roman Catholic Church that is making a public official position and denying Nancy Pelosi communion due to her stance on uh, on abortion, I I knew that something has to be done. Because what we have is the Roman Catholic Church stating a public position 
on the matter of abortion, and the Protestant Church has no official unified voice, no, no, no position. So it should be very clear that the Protestant Church has no seat at the table, no place at the public square. One news source I read even said that the Roman Catholic Church was the institutional leadership of the church in this country. And practically, I think they're right. The Protestant Church has given up the ability to have an institutional public voice because we don't even see ourselves as an institution, first of all. And going back to the Establishment Clause, it's actually, I mean, I I admit it, I, I think it's illegal to have an established religion or a religious test at the federal level. Now, the fact that it is illegal in our Constitution, that doesn't nullify God's law, but it does make it a long battle and a difficult one to to overturn. The fact that we cannot have an established federal church and uh, and we cannot have a religious test demanded by the Bible at the federal level is another reason why I don't put my effort into the federal government. I'll go on record as saying I have no hope for the federal government of the United States and the nation as a whole under the current unbiblical construct. But there is a possibility at the county level and even at the state level. I'll talk more about this next time. But even if we cannot get the the state civil magistrate to recognize a unified institutional church, that doesn't mean we can't still do it because Jesus has already recognized it. If you haven't picked it up already, the the strategy I'm presenting is one where if the civil government construct that we are in will not recognize and even prohibit official Christian religion, then we do what any good strategist would do. We withdraw and we do an oblique attack. We don't keep fighting head on. If you have the means of victory, pull back reestablish and reattack on your own terms. And in this case, for us, that the terms would be the terms of King Jesus. He provides the authority to have local Christendom. Nehemiah's band in the book of Nehemiah, they never asked if they could covenant with the, with the Lord. They never asked permission from the civil government. The only positive command by King Cyrus of Persia was to build the temple. And Cyrus says he was in charge of all the kingdoms of the earth. President Biden has nothing on Cyrus as far as power goes. And the same for Artaxerxes later. But Ezra and Nehemiah led the people into an official religion. And I think that's an approved pattern for us today. I think it's our prototype. But we need some mind renewing, and we're going to need some actual tactical maneuvering, uh, we need to realize that the government does not get its power from a social construct, uh, from a, a, a social compact. It doesn't get its power from the people. It doesn't mean, however, that we disrespect our civil leaders. Uh, John Calvin didn't. Uh, John Knox didn't. Uh, even Jesus had a certain amount of deference for Pontius Pilate. We are to honor the civil magistrate even as we oppose him. Um, and I think that it's wise to work within the system as much as possible, because that's what Paul did. In reality, we use our laws, but we recognize that the only Supreme Court is God's court. I've got some more ideas on how to put the, the doctrine of the recognized institutional church into practice in our current environment, but I'll save that for later. Guys, listen, we're just beginning the conversation on this, okay? I, I understand that, and uh, we've got a ways to go. In the military, 
we try to get to an 80% solution before we roll the tanks. And uh, we're, we're not there yet. We need prayer. Uh, we need God's help and understanding. And we need the Reformed Church to cooperate locally and at the state level. And uh, I, I've got some ideas to how to get that rolling a little bit. Tactically, with Roe getting kicked down to the states, it may mean that we have an opportunity for states to begin to act uh, again like the countries that they are. And this is an opportunity, and I think a keen reason in my eye, to get the ball rolling on a recognized institutional church. What we don't want, what we don't want, is the states setting up their own laws that if things get kicked back to them on abortion, for example, we don't want them doing that without any official position and guidance from the church. Christ demands more. Well, thanks for giving me your time today. Until next time, remember Psalm 6311. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone that sweareth by him shall glory. But the mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped. <laughs>